What's up, everybody? Welcome to Theology in the Dirt. We want to practice our theology in the public square of our homes, our city, and our world. We record Theology in the Dirt from Global Impact Restoration Home. We work to address the foster care and adoption crisis in northwest Georgia, Georgia, the southeast, and the world as we practice our theology in the public square. You can check out Restoration Rome by going to restorationrome.org. You can also find sermon notes and other stuff, links to this podcast on the blog at theologyinthedirt.com. My name is Mitchell Jolly. And I'm Chris Hayes. How about we get to some news? Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Cannonball! That's never not going to be funny for me. <laughs> well, in, in the world of news, uh, some, some really sad and disturbing news to, to start off with. Three U.S. service members were killed and dozens more injured with traumatic head injuries. And, and the word is that those numbers of traumatic head injuries from this drone strike are increasing over the weekend when an Iranian-backed militia, likely in Syria, launched a drone strike against a U.S. military installation in northeast Jordan near the Syrian border. President Joe Biden said Sunday that the U.S. would respond. Now, these service members embodied the very best of our nation, he said, unwavering in their bravery and flinching in their duty and bending in their commitment to our country, risking their own safety for the safety of their fellow Americans and our allies and partners with whom we stand in the fight against terrorism. Uh, have no doubt, he said, we will hold all those responsible to account at a time and in a manner of our choosing. Now, while Iran-affiliated militias in the Middle East have launched more than 150 attacks on the U.S. and allied troops in the region since Hamas' October 7 attack on Israel, this is the first attack that has resulted in the deaths of U.S. troops. And the U.S., U.K., and Germany are among at least 11 countries that announced over the weekend, this is the separate piece of news, that uh, they were pausing funding of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, the UNRWA, after allegations emerged that 12 of the U.N. agency's workers participated in Hamas' October 7 attack on Israel. Of the 12 staff members, nine have been fired one is confirmed dead, and the identities of two have yet to be confirmed, according to U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez. The pause in funding only affects new obligations after January 24, not money allocated prior to that date. Now, according to the State Department, the countries uh, pausing their funding said they will wait for the outcome of the U.N.'s investigation into the agency to make final decisions about supporting the agency in the future. And then finally, Yemen's Houthi rebels fired at the USS Kearney, a U.S. Navy destroyer in the Gulf of Aden, on Friday. The first time a U.S. warship has uh, been directly targeted since the Iranian-backed group began attacking ships in the Red Sea in October. The missile was successfully shot down by the USS Kearney. U.S. Central Command, CENTCOM, said there were no injuries or damage reported. The U.S. conducted a strike on a Houthi anti-ship missile ready to launch Saturday, and it's the latest in a series of strikes on the Iran-backed militia. So that's my news coming to us from the dispatch. Chris, what you got? All right, well, the restaurant industry is showing signs of life after a brutal brutal stretch brought by the COVID-19 pandemic. So nearly 53,800 restaurants have opened their doors last year, 
up 10% for 2022 based on new Yelp listings. Another way of looking at that figure, it's up 2% from 2019, meaning there's been a slight increase in openings compared to pre-pandemic times. Uh, All told, there were 16.1 new restaurants in 2023 in the U.S. for every 100,000 people. And new business listings overall were up 20% in 23 compared to 22 and up 40% compared to 2019. However, it's not all sunshine and rainbows as the rising costs and more competition is making things really hard for independent restaurant owners who are struggling to keep up and stay afloat. So things continue to grow, but yeah. there's a potential uh, downfall to that as well. Wow. And then uh, a report that was recently released um, towards uh, last year, nearly 16% of U.S. millennials live with their parents in 2022. Per the latest census figures, younger people are increasingly struggling to swing high housing costs and returning to their childhood bedrooms uh, or basements or attics or wherever you might find a place to stay. Uh, The number of Americans aged 25 to 34 living at home has jumped over 87% in the past two decades, according to census data. Uh, Younger generations may be staying home to save on expenses like rent or a future down payment. Others, uh, young adults, are choosing to care for family members. But plunging affordability hasn't stopped some millennials from buying homes um, but usually the ones that are buying homes are doing that with family help. Some even are having to put homes in their parents' names um, just because of their history, their credit, those kinds of things, to be yeah. able to afford housing on their own. Uh, nearly 55% of millennials, and that's the people aged 27 to 42, owned a home in 2023, up from 52% in 2022. So according to new reports, they're still purchasing homes, but uh, the numbers continue to... Um, decline as far as that goes because people can't afford it. And right. the, with the erasure basically of the middle class yeah. over the last few years, um, it's getting harder to, to buy a home. It's crazy. We just looking around Roman Floyd County, you can't you can't find a three and two under two thousand square feet still gonna be in the mid threes. Like that's blowing my mind. Low threes, mid threes, some high twos. I don't know how. Yeah. How in the world that's crazy. So many are are like double what they were going less than ten years ago. Yeah. And that's just insane. It is insane. Absolutely. That's wild. Well, that's some amazing news. And Chris, we got our final piece of news today. Tell us about Magic Mind. Yeah, TID listeners, don't forget about Magic Mind. Uh, with key ingredients like matcha, uh, cordyceps, mushrooms, and, and a, which is an adaptogen uh, that reduces inflammation, and a host of other amazing ingredients that boost brain function, you guys are really going to enjoy Magic Mind. Um, been looking for ways to increase my energy levels to keep them steady throughout the day. Um, as I've mentioned before, I'm not a coffee drinker. Uh, I know you are, but you've <laughs> decreased your coffee intake with Magic Mind. It actually goes goes really well with the coffee and helps keep that uh, energy throughout the day. And so we found this little shot to help us along the way. Uh, they've been a great supporter of our podcast, and we appreciate them. And so instead of going to that third, fourth, fifth, sixth cup of coffee to keep up energy levels, you can just take this little shot alongside your coffee or in place of it. And a good go for the rest of the day. Um, So if you'd like to try an all-natural, gluten-free, sugar-free, keto, vegan, and paleo-friendly amazing help to increase your focus and energy that also contributes to your brain health, you need to give Magic Mind a try. Uh, We've been using Magic Mind. We think you guys will enjoy it, help keep you running at peak performance all day long. Um, I know it's increased my energy and my focus, so that's really cool. I think Magic Mind is the first energy drink that really focuses in on – being able to maintain like focus throughout yeah. the day. It's not just about um, energy itself, although it does help with that. Uh, but you can get your own Magic Mind by going to the link magicmind.com slash J-A-N theology in the dirt. Again, that's magicmind.com, capital J-A-N, T 
Theology in the Dirt and use our special promo code TID20. Um, this will help you crush January, get 2024 off to a good start as we get into February here really soon. So go ahead and get you some Magic Mind. You get one month for free when you're subscribing for three months. Again, use that link. At, um, we'll be put that in our um, in our bio as well as in our um, description for this podcast episode. Don't forget our code TID20. It's an extra 20% off. gets you up to 75% off. Uh, but this only lasts to the end of January, and so hurry up and get it before it goes away. Magic Mind has a 100% money-back guarantee, no questions asked. So there's really not any risk. If you don't like it, they'll refund you in a few hours. Um, no issues, no questions asked. So go ahead and get that Magic Mind today. With that said, Mitch. It's time for the show. Let's do it. Let's go. Hey, I'm going to give you to the count of 10 to get your ugly, yellow, no-good keister off my property before I pump your guts full of lead. One, two, Ten. Keep the change, you filthy animal. All right, Chris. Today, um, it, it started, okay, th- this question is a question that started coming last year. Um, <clears throat> for the first time in the history of our church, uh, the majority of the people are really on the same Bible reading plan and reading reading it through. Uh, the little plan that, that uh, I like, been using for a very long time, gets us through the New Testament Psalms twice a year and the Old Testament one time a year. Now, there are some people in our church... Uh, who still use the chronological plan, and, you know, God help them. <laughs> That's okay as long as you're reading your Bible. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's We okay. do prefer this other yeah, plan. Yeah, yeah, as we do prefer this other one. As you're reading your Bible, it's good. <laughs> but we, this, one's, this one's more, it's superior. But anyway, so once we get to this this time of year, we're, you know, we're through Genesis, but somewhere there at the beginning, uh, beginning of the month, people start, uh, they read across Genesis 6, and last year this is when this started, the text came in like, who are the sons of God? And I was like, oh boy, here we go. Here we go. And so, um, and, and so once again, people reading through that, and, and Genesis 6, 1 to 4 raises some questions. Now, now what's interesting for me is that, I, okay, here we go. So this was, this was a theological cave for me. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's a theological cave for me was uh, early on as a, a young guy, 20 years old, new to the gospel, read my Bible through for the first time, and I've done that now since I was 20. I'm 51, so that's you know 31 years. And so I've been on this plan, reading the Old Testament, New Testament, um, get the Old Testament once a year, New Testament Psalms twice a year. So um, I my first time through, uh, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, didn't give me so much of a challenge as much as Psalm 82. Psalm 82 really challenged some stuff in me and uh, and it sent me into a theological cave that I, I just sort of ignored because I figure I could um, as a naturalist uh, not a closet naturalist not because I was a choosing naturalism or anything like that it's because the it's educational air we breathe all of our lives mm-hmm. is we default to we're just stuff and the world is just stuff and and anything that's immaterial is kind of hoo-booey or um, other than maybe some angels and demons which we kind of believe because we believe our Bible, but at the same time, do we don't take it really seriously enough to, to you know, I remember the first time I really took that seriously was um, uh, This Present Darkness uh, by Frank Peretti. Did, yeah. And I read that book Great and thought, book. whoa, so what if? And, and, and I started drawing connections. And so um, one of the beautiful things when you read your Bible all the way through, you start drawing arcs because it's one book 66 chapters, one divine author, many scribes. And so it tells one cohesive story. And so it's not a disconnected narrative. It's the meta-narrative. It's, it's 
the overarching umbrella of what is true for us as Christians. And I would say it's true for everybody because it's the way Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if people ignore that meta narrative, they're outside the gospel. So we believe the Bible is the meta narrative. It tells what is true. And so when you start reading these things and paying attention to it, you 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 have to ask and answer some difficult questions about Genesis six which should lead you to Psalm 82, which should also make you backtrack to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and, 8 and 9, along with a host of other things. Mm-hmm. And so when you ask and answer the question, who are the sons of God, you're going to have some options there. Um, now, what I find interesting, I land on a, I land on a place. Like, I'm convinced I'm convinced one option. You have, you have some good options. You're going to throw those out and we're going to talk about it. I'm convinced about one of them. Um, I'm 100% convinced about one of them. And part of the reason I'm convinced about that is because for so long, even in our evangelical commentaries and our evangelical discussion, we default to, and I think it's subconscious, I don't think it's intentional, we, we default to a naturalistic explanation of biblical text as opposed to good exegesis, which would begin to presuppose the worldview of the, the divinely inspired author. Right. When, when Moses penned Genesis 6, 1 to 4, he was not a naturalist. He did not have, a, um, he did not have an, uh, uh, um, a Darwinian naturalistic understanding of mankind and creation and, and the spiritual world. He was Mesopotamian in descent. Uh, his audience had that background of literature in their soul. And so when Moses is writing and writing to this audience of of this, this Jewish nation, these Israelis, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, preparing to enter the promised land. Um, he was preparing them for the spiritual combat they were going to run up against um, in the physical combat they were engaging in because the two were, were linked. And you're going to bring up Og, you're going to bring up Rephaim, because these, these, these matter in this discussion about Genesis 6, 1-4 and on who the sons of God are. And so their understanding, it's not my understanding, it's not a naturalistic understanding explaining the text away. It is a supernatural view that Moses possessed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to pen Scripture for us. Right. That makes sense? And so, so good exegesis gets into the worldview of the author, not my presuppositions as a reader. And, and so Bible study has to begin as what is the author's presupposition because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so their, their set of values and beliefs is what I need to adopt as my own. And so when you get to Genesis 6, 1 to 4, there's a lot going on in Moses. There's a lot going on in the people of the Lord in their background from their literature that they read and understood and believed to be true that Moses assumes is true and is writing with the assumption that we would know and understand that. And I don't think we need to read their literature to know what they were thinking either. So don't hear me, anybody read, listening to this or watching this say, you got to go learn Mesopotamian cosmology. You don't think you need to do that. I think there's enough in the Bible to glean what they understood. But you have to read. You have to pay attention. You have to read it more than once. Mm-hmm. And you have to dig a little bit. And and I know, like, uh, if you look up the Bible project on uh, the Divine Council, if you read read and, and watch Michael Heiser, who's worth the time. Now, there's places to critique Heiser. Um, there's some conclusions Heiser has that I think are critiqued and should be critiqued. But by and large, Heiser, Heiser does a fantastic job of unpacking this with a supernatural worldview. So here's what I want to say. Uh, I want to read Genesis 6, 1 to 4. Uh, I want to bring up Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32 and probably do that as we discuss along. I don't, I don't, I don't want to take up too much time on the front end introducing. I want you to get to the incredible content that you have. But what I do want to 
say is something Heiser says that I think it's huge is don't be afraid of the Bible. Let it talk. We don't have to make it say something it doesn't say. <clears throat> if the Bible says it, we can take it to the bank and believe it. And so when we read passages like Genesis 6, 1 to 4, let's not explain them away. Let's not pretend it's not complicated. Let's let it talk and don't be afraid of it because if it is God's word and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can trust yeah. what it says. And so here, here's what it says, Genesis 6, 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever for his flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the question is, who are the sons of God? And consequently, because these sons of God came into the daughters of men and the production is Nephilim, what in the world is that? Yeah. They were on the earth before the flood and after the flood. Now, if that don't raise some questions, then you're not reading carefully enough. So, <clears throat> I will digress for, <laughs> for a minute. Yeah, a lot going on here. Um, yeah, I think when we start, there, so there's four different categories or groups of people here in this passage I think we can address. There's, there's God, right? There's the Lord. There is, and really there's five if you count man, but there's, there's the Lord. There is the sons of God. There is the daughters of man who I think we can pretty clearly assume that that's human women. That's right. And then there is the Nephilim. Nephilim. And yep. we're going to cover all, all of these today. Um, but we know who the Lord is and we know who what human women are. So that begs the question, who are sons of God? Right. Because um, it's not the son of God, which is used to describe Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. So right. when we look at this text, there are three primary uh, beliefs or interpretations basically about who the sons of God are. There may be more, but there's three that are kind of like the most common. So right. just to go through some of these, one view is, understands that the sons of God are descendants of Seth, uh, Seth being the third son of, of Adam and Eve. And uh, in this interpretation, Seth's godly descendants were intoxicated by the beauty of women descended from Cain, thus marrying those who'd rejected God and leading to greater weakness, weakness, wickedness. I'm sorry, greater wickedness. I can't read my own writing. And they were weak as a result of they their were sin weak, yes. and their wickedness. Uh, the strongest evidence for this position is found in Genesis 4 and 5, which describe two lines of descent from Adam, one through Cain, which was thought to be kind of the sinful, wicked uh, lineage, and then one through Seth. Seth basically replacing the Abel. innocence of Abel, right, uh, right. Of, of godly uh, followed after his heart. So in the Old Testament, God's covenant people are sometimes referred to as God's sons. We see this in Deuteronomy 14.1 and Jeremiah 3.19, um, though the precise phrase sons of God is never used of them. So we see a little bit of reference there. Uh, but if the Sethite view is correct, this could explain why God later forbade the Israelites from marrying Canaanite women, uh, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7. Um, it's also sometimes used to speak of uh, followers of Christ, referring to sons of God. Uh, we've seen that in Matthew 5, Romans 8, Galatians 3. So the concept of divine sonship in the scriptures is not always linked to a biological or ontological relationship or like a relationship of being, but it's rather it's chiefly used to set forth a relationship of obedience. So those who believe in the Sethite view um, mean that Genesis 6 could simply be speaking about the intermarriage of those who manifested a pattern of obedience to God in their lives and those who were pagans in their orientation or, yeah. or through the line of Cain. Right. Um, so that's one view. The most common view, I would say, um, 
is the view that the sons of God are fallen angels or some type of angelic spiritual being. Maybe not angels as in the sense of wings and halos and, and harps right. necessarily. But right. and we've talked about this a little bit in other other um, episodes. But uh, in other instances of this phrase, like in Job, is clearly a reference to spiritual beings. And the hard part about this for some is the idea of spiritual beings or angels having sexual relations with humans, which is understandable. So I can understand the rejection of this thought process, um, understanding how, how could a spiritual being or an, or an angel, which is not made in the image of God with, with the parts that human have, right. be able to have sexual relations and marry. Um, right. Well, yeah. it's actually very interesting, too, because you have Jesus in answering the question to the, they wanted to trap him, and, and they about the, the Leverett marriage situation, brother died, didn't leave children. So the next brother was to take her as a wife and raise up children for his brother so that he, he would have a name. Um, and and Jesus, the scenario they gave him, they all, none of them produced children. So in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Yeah. And Jesus said, neither. You don't, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. She, they will neither marry and be given in marriage, but they'll be like the, like the angels of heaven. Or that, and so th- th- this idea that, well, angels don't marry. So, so what's interesting there is some people interpret that to say, well, angels don't have sexual capacity or, or any sexuality to them. But Jesus never actually says that. What Jesus says is angels don't marry. And and then and then the then there are categories like the, the Bible is clear that there there's more than angel demon. There's a multitude right. of categories of of spiritual beings, and and so and so it could be that angels messengers angelos. Maybe they they aren't sexual, but what is clear in other passages is some of them may be. Yeah. So anyway, that just there's a, there's a lot there to unpack. No, and I actually made that note in here too because I think that's an important thing to mention that there are a number of spiritual beings beyond just angels and demons, and there are different categories of angels. Um, and we've we've hit on that some on past episodes, but kind of getting back here, uh, both so both Peter and Jude make references to these spiritual beings who disobeyed at the time of the flood. So this belief is is more reliable, I would say, than the first one for many people who are looked at this text. Um, and then others believe that the sons of God were rulers or princes um, of or some kind of ancient king that were either demon possessed or some kind of combination of lowercase g, God, and human. So the thought is that spiritual beings took over the bodies of sinful men and used them to have inappropriate sexual relations with human women and then took them as wives and so on. Um, and so um, we can unpack that a little bit. I, I've got just kind of getting into a little bit more here, but let me know if we need to back up. No, that's good. Uh, so, for example, we have um, the Elohim, right? We talked about different mm-hmm. spiritual beings in different categories. Uh, Elohim, uh, now that word gets used a lot to mean big G God, right? Uh, even though it's really a category title to describe a type of spiritual being, not a name, right. but it's used often as a name. And it's kind of the same way we, we would use the word human to categorize who we are to separate us from animals. Right. But if we take it a step further, for instance, mom, the word, the word mom is a title, but it's also often used as a name, typically when referring to someone that personal to us. So if I'm referring to my mom or your mom. Right. Um, not in the joke sense, because <laughs> that's what I go to. <laughs> Your mom. Yeah. Uh, so so Elohim is a title, not a name. And that again, that confusion sometimes comes up. So the Bible authors know the name of the Lord is Yahweh, but would sometimes use Elohim, the title, to refer to him like a name. 
instead of only using his name. Right. So I think that's, there's probably some confusion there that hopefully that helps sure. clarify some of that. But these are divine beings, and they, but they all serve under the authority of the great divine uh, yeah. who is Yahweh. Yeah, because the Bible does use that language. Pretty Psalm 82 uses that language, and that's why Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32 kind of have to go hand in hand. And, and I'll backtrack to this in a few minutes to, to the three rebellions of Genesis, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. Those three rebellions go together, and they're really mm-hmm. connected to Psalm 82 and Deuteronomy 32. And, and that's where those arcs start coming in and, 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 and the connection to how the Bible uses Elohim and applies it to some of these beings mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to differently how it applies to Yahweh. Right. And so that we've got to fight through that because, again, we can't be afraid of our Bible. We've got to let it speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 let it create our categories. We don't bring our categories to the text and read them on top of the text. We let it create our categories. And so this is one of those where we have to let it create the categories the Lord wants it to create. Yeah, and, and another one of these. So getting into this next category, which we're going to talk about, the divine council. Um, I think, and I may be speaking for others, but I, from from when I have conversations with people, it seems that most people kind of look at creation as their only thing that existed before creation was the Trinity. Yeah. And I think there's evidence that that's not the case. There were spiritual beings that existed before the creation of, like, the world, the earth, and the people. Yeah. It's likely uh, that the Lord created the hosts of heaven before he created other things. Correct. Yeah, yeah and I know, that's Genesis hints at that a little bit. It's like, before right. he did this, you get the end of Genesis 1, all the hosts, all the hosts were completed. And, and there are many who refer to the sons of God who think they are the, the divine council, right? Uh, which is kind of like, try to put it in our terms, it's kind of like a leadership team, like an organization. Yeah. That may not be the best translation of that. Yeah. And then the question would come, well, why does God need help? But And I don't think that's the wrong question because yeah. obviously we know that God doesn't need help. Right. But he chooses to share authority from time to time. He does that with us. He shares right. his authority with us on the earth right. and gives us that that ability. So the divine council existed again, not because he needed them, but they kind of helped in decision-making and to be able to give feedback on various things. Right. I think we can make that assumption from the clues, but I, well, you know, you've got more on the divine council. Well, he, he does. He, it's interesting because you, you get this in Job and you get it in this account with, uh, um, uh, um, Ahab and Hezekiah. Mm-hmm. So the sons of God come and they present themselves to the Lord and Job. And right. coming in among them is is the accuser. And and the Lord's having this conversation with them. And what I find absolutely fascinating is uh is is in this this council meeting. There's there are these beings, and this is where this is where it gets a little tricky because they come to present themselves in Job, this these beings. Mm-hmm. And 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 is it a mixed group? Because among them is the accuser, the one who is going to be allowed to bring devastation to Job's life for a while. And and then you get the same sort of image with Hezekiah and Ahab in which Ahab is trying to entice Hezekiah to go with him to Ramoth Gilead to fight a battle. And and Micaiah, the faithful prophet, tells the truth. And, uh, and you get this picture of this scene and the Lord says, who's going to go and be a lying spirit in the mouths of Ahab's prophets? And one volunteers to go be a liar. Right. From this council, these these this same council of beings who are in Job meeting with the Lord, and so that's that's the scene that is before the throne of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Who are these beings who have this power to go be a lying spirit or go be one who touches the 
the family life and flesh of Job um, under the authority of Yahweh. And that, that, that's, not just, that's not just Gabriel coming and bringing Mary a message. That, that, there's, there's a difference there. Right. And, um, and, and that's a different category. You get, you get in Revelation 4 and 5, you get the elders, this group of... And, and, and the, the picture is not that these are church elders, but these are beings called elders whose task before the throne of the Lord is, is constant presence and counsel and worship. Right. And so this isn't like your little chubby, you know, angel with wings flopping around playing a harp. This is a different animal, man. Yeah. And and so and so who are these who are who are these beings? Right. You know? Um and by the way, by the way, when you, you referenced Peter and Jude, mm-hmm. did you catch you catch in the footnote there where they're quoting and citing from? Enoch. Yep. Which is not a a canonical biblical text. Right. So, so, and, and if and if anybody's bothered to ever go read Enoch, Enoch takes the Genesis six one to four story and puts a microscope down on top of it yeah. and does some Mesopotamian, Egyptian, um, Canaanite understanding of what Moses is saying. Now, again, it was not included in the canon, so we don't cite it as as, as it's authoritative. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't contain true information. It clearly does because under their inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter and Jude quote from it, incite from it to say these beings at that flood account in Genesis 6 didn't stay in their place. Right. They left it in rebellion and came and did something awful and the Lord put them in chains of gloomy darkness to await judgment on the last day. So whoever they are are no longer active in the world. They are held in bondage waiting for judgment, whoever mm-hmm. that is. But those are different cats. Yeah. Those those are not your yeah those are different entities and so we got to wrestle with the fact that they quote a non canonical book that gives detail about the flood narrative of Genesis six one to four that they left some position of authority and did some manner of rebellion that had a massive consequence of which the Lord put them in gloomy chains of darkness to be held for judgment right um, so then again that mentioned that that's those are the only two times this phrase is used in the New Testament. Second uh, Peter two and in the book of Jude, yeah. um, it's used about four to five times in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. We got, of course, Genesis six, Job one six, Job two one, Job thirty eight, and then Daniel three twenty five. So there's not a lot of references to this, right? But what makes out of those three options I gave, what makes that second one stand out the most is the mention of that version of that they are spiritual beings in these other passages. That's right. Where the, these other ones don't point towards them being Sethites. Yeah. Uh, or like greater human types. Right. That makes sense. So right. I, I'd love to hear, I'd love, cause I know you've studied this a lot and I'd love to hear, I wanted to lay out those for our listeners. So they kind of understand these are kind of the three common beliefs, but where do you stand on who these sons of God are? Um, and then and what are the implications of, of that? Yeah. I think exegetically every phrase in the Bible has to be interpreted contextually. And, and the question is, what is the author's intent? That's the meaning. Right. And so there are places where sons of God is used clearly referencing saints, daughters and sons of Adam who have been redeemed and have the Holy Spirit. We are daughters and sons of God. And so it's clear the author is speaking about us. There are places in the text of Scripture where he is not speaking about us. And I think that's where you have to compile uh, the usage and the context of what is being said 
and determine that. And I think what you have, um, when you talk about Genesis 6, you weave that together with Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, mm-hmm. and then you weave that together with Psalm 82, what you find is, at least in those instances, in those places, he is speaking about a different being other than human descendants of Seth or believers in the Lord. Because what you have in Genesis 6 is you have this these sons of God who, who have relations with daughters of men, and they produce a Nephilim which are some type of being that we're going to learn later as you, as you look in, in the yeah. synonym of Nephilim being used with Rephim and Anakim and the Amim, uh, referencing the giants, mm-hmm. um, that these are the production of these sons of God and the daughters of men. Um, <clears throat> and so um, when you go to, so this is important to, for people to check. In Genesis, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there are three rebellions. There's the first rebellion by the, the fiery uh, dragon, the serpent of Genesis 3. And then you get Genesis 6 as a different rebellion, as Jude and Peter speak about, and, and Moses captures for us. And then the last rebellion is Babel in Genesis 11. And so what's interesting there is the nations um, are scattered at Babel. And so it's kind of the last rebellion before the Lord scatters them over the face of the earth to go and be the nations. And, he, and they're divided up into nations. And that's where the Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, as Heiser refers to it as the Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9 worldview. And the reason this one is important is because verse 9 is the one that distinguishes between sons of God and um, the descendants of, of human beings. And it reads like this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, right? So what is that referencing? Gave the nations their inheritance when he divided man. When he divided mankind, Babel. All right. So when he did that, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Whoa. Now, if he means descendants of Seth, that that means one thing. Right. If he means other beings, that's a whole different can of worms. Yes. Verse ten or verse nine tells us the answer to that question. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob. His allotted heritage. So verse 8 speaks about the nations being divided to and given over to the rule of the sons of God. Verse 10 says, The Lord preserved the descendants of Jacob, which would be Seth. Mm-hmm. Right? Seth would be the line, not Cain. It's right. through Seth that we come up and have the descendants of Jacob. Those people, chosen by the Lord, elected by the Lord, are the ones the Lord oversees. And, 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 their missionary head would be Abraham, who would be the missionary to these other nations to tell them of the Lord and how to become the inheritance of the Lord from the nations who are set under the rule of these sons of God. That's the Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 worldview. Now, I, I know for people who, who are hearing this the first time, that is going to rock their world. Um, and And... It needs to be rocked yeah. because we're just dealing with the text. Let the Bible speak. Now, here's I'm going to get way to the end here, but this is important because if as Christians, it's easy to throw around spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare, and just have this view, uh, a muted and truncated understanding of what that is. Because if we're dealing with spiritual warfare, we're dealing with something that's real and powerful and intense and not to be taken lightly. But if we don't understand the robust nature of it, it's like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. Mm-hmm. Because if Deuteronomy 
32, 8, and 9 is true, we believe it is, then nations that haven't received the gospel of the kingdom set under some manner of authority that's, that's really hard. And you get a picture of this in Daniel. This is this mysterious passage. And now you've got these watchers in Daniel. Mm-hmm. And you've got this one who's speaking with Daniel. And he comes and he says in, this, in, in the passage that he came in response to Daniel's prayer. He said, in fact, from the time you set your heart to seek the Lord and you prayed, I was sent. But he said, I've been contending with the prince of Persia. And you're like, huh? So there's this being sent by the Lord to answer Daniel's prayer, but he's been delayed because he's been fighting this com- in, in this war in the heavenlies with the prince of Persia. Well, who's that? Well, perhaps it's Jake one. Jake <laughs> there, there it is. Now we know. But so he, so the prince of Persia is clearly some entity that is set over the nation of Persia. And could it be it's one of the sons of God from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, Genesis 11, that the Lord set them under as judgment and authority under beings because of the rebellion of which they would be ruled until liberated by the good news? Could be. That's where Psalm 82 gets really interesting. And it's, I'm not even going to read it. I'm just going to tell people, go read Psalm 82 in light of what we've just said, and it will start to make a lot of sense because then you see why God is judging these Elohim. Mm-hmm. that God is bringing judgment on the Elohim because they have, not only are they part of the rebellion, but they have done a poor job of managing creation, managing the nations that were divided at Babel. And he is going to tell me, he says, you're going to die like any man. So you have the same sentence passed upon you as men who won't follow me. Yeah. So then that starts making hell come into a different light of understanding. This is, this is not, hell is not a place ruled over by Satan. Hell is a place ruled over by the Lord to judge forever and eternally humans and beings that are not human who rebelled against Him and ref- and, and 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 will stand in the condemnation of God. And so, when well, the ESV even says, "You shall you shall die and fall like any prince." Yes, not that's just right. man. And so I think, and that's prince that's is accurate. That's right. Yeah, and some people use that to support that these are more royalty type figures. Unless the prince of Persia means anything, right? right. So, but again, yeah. it's it's kind of that point of taking something yeah. literally or taking something figuratively, and, yeah. and, and again, understanding the yeah. intent behind the passage because you could you could make that mean about three or four different things, yeah. But but really, in the context of what they're saying, what yeah. does that mean? And I, and I think what's important here for people to recognize is, you know, I always tell people when you're beginning to study your Bible, just read it, take it for face value, get through it, read it, make sense of it. The, the other part of that as you start working through it is the study needs to kick in because there's things you're going to have to dive deep into. It's, as you read through your Bible, and this is why I love, this is, this is how I knew as a church we're really beginning to read the Bible through together as people started asking these hard questions. Mm-hmm. They started going, oh my gosh, what is this? And this isn't the only one. This is just the one that becomes most common because, because let me just say this, I think the conclusion that the Bible gives is a lot more satisfying than naturalism's explaining it away as just mere humans. Yeah. And I would argue that the rest of the world who's left naturalism behind and did so 30 years ago have beat us to the punch of understanding what's going on in the world, and it takes the form of ghost shows and uh, e- EMPs and all this crazy stuff. It's, it's on the Discovery Channel. Those cats are really dealing with stuff like the witch at Endor, and Samuel being conjured up to judge Saul. Like, that's in our Bible. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes is, is that real? Well, yeah, it's real. It's inspired. It's the inerrant word of God. So somehow 
there's a human being who has the capacity to communicate with this world and somehow brought Saul up and the Lord allowed it to happen. I mean, Samuel up to speak a word of judgment against Saul. So therefore, <laughs> to me, that's more satisfying than going, well, it didn't, re- man, you know, it's kind of maybe, uh, maybe it was the Lord letting them think it was. No, 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 no. There is a real unseen realm to creation of which we are intimately, intricately tied with. And we dwell in both of those worlds as a physical being with an immaterial part of us. Right. And and there's an immaterial creation and there's a material creation. Those worlds weave together. And and the mystery of that is so much more satisfying in the biblical text and trying to explain it away. Mm-hmm. It's like C.S. Lewis said, it's a magical world, and it really is. But it's also got dark parts to it, too. And this is where we have to be careful. And I want to just give people a warning, too. Study this and let the Bible be your guide, but be careful what you read extra biblical mm-hmm. and don't get don't get into places that the enemy who disguises himself, 2 Corinthians 11, as an angel of light, would take you into a place you think is light and it turns out to be very dark. Yeah, That's what Satan does. He disguises himself as an angel of light and his prophets are disguised as angel of light. And so we have to have discernment. That's why 1 John 4, 1 tells us to discern, test the spirits to see whether they're from the Lord. So that means deceptive spirits want to make us think we are hearing from something that is good or maybe hearing from the Lord when in fact they're sucking us down into the dark abyss of the rebellion of Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. And so be very warned. This is much more satisfying and there's a lot and the truth here to be gleaned is more satisfying than naturalism, but it also can suck you into a world which is dangerous if you don't have the lens of the scriptures informing you. Well, and I and I think naturally, not talking about naturalism, but just naturally as human beings, yeah. the things that are not easily explainable are easily avoided. And I think the Bible's no different. I think because you don't hear there's not a passage. A lot of pastors are like, you know what? I really want to preach on some Genesis six today. I just have this inkling <laughs> yeah. to, and 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 everyone's going to love it. It's gonna, you know because it's. Like we're going to talk about Nephilim, and I want to get to that because I think that's an important part of this passage that we need to address. But I wonder too, because so we talked a little bit about mythology last week, right? And how we did. Now I would say most people would just when they hear mythology, we automatically assume fiction, right? Made up, which is not really what its intent or meaning of mythology is. Correct. And I think that that applies here as well because I think we hear we see something that sounds kind of mythological, and it's not that I don't think people are saying this is not true. But it's just easy to either dismiss it or not want to dive into it because it seems yeah. like there's there's not the Bible put it in there, so it's important, but it doesn't give us much. It doesn't on give us it. a systemic te- a systematic teaching on it. Right. It, it it's not like we can like we can go to the Bible and we can we can truly unpack the nature and character of God. We can unpack the nature and character of the church from every page of Scripture. Um, I think we can unpack the nature of the spiritual world a lot more than we're willing to give ourselves credit for. I just think we're wrestling against our naturalistic tendencies to to explain it away rather than just receive it as real. Mm. And and so and so, um, but nonetheless, it is a little more uh, enigmatic and less explicit. Um, and some of it is buried in linguistic things. And unfortunately, unfortunately, if you don't have a little, he- a little Hebrew background, it's going to be hard to pull out some of the nuances in the language because you'll see things in the footnotes of your Bible that give you an alternative translation. And the reason there's an alternative translation is because there is one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I'm, the, I'm a Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic background 
translator. And so I see those nuances. I know of them in the text. I can go grab my BDB, my Brown Driver and Briggs, my lexicon. I get my Hebrew Old Testament, and I can I, I can plow through that, figure that out. Yeah. And and so, um, but for your person reading, you have to depend on those footnotes, which are there to help you. Um, but you've got to pay attention to them because they're there to let you know there's something here you might need to dig into. And once you know that, you can go find a tool. Everybody can have online access to Hebrew lexicon and find out the nuance and depth of a, a, a phrase or a word. Right. Do that. And, and don't be afraid of it. Let it speak. Because that helps you get into the background of the author. What is the author saying? What was Moses' worldview? How did Moses see this? A fascinating thing to throw on to people here from the Mesopotamian perspective. It's Because it goes back to the flood a little bit. Gilgamesh. If most of us, like I remember having to read the Gilgamesh epic in high school because mm-hmm. it, uh, it's, it's literature. Um, and then I had to do it again in college. And I remember it, particularly after I became a Christian, it challenged my understanding of the Bible. Because um, like, oh my gosh, like, so there's another flood story. And then I started realizing, well, there's another flood story. Oh, that, that means maybe the flood really happened because the Babylonians have a flood story. And then you start digging into Gilgamesh, and do you know what the Babylonians believe Gilgamesh to be? Nephilim. A Nephilim. Yep. He was a giant. Mm-hmm. He was a hybrid god. They worshipped him as a low-level deity because they believed him to be a hybrid of a spiritual being and a human being. The Babylonians believed that. Yep. And so it's possible because that's the literary background of Abraham's descendants and Moses, who came from Ur of the Chaldeans, not Moses, but Abraham came from where the Chaldeans, and that's their background. And Moses, being a descendant of that, having that literature sit in his background, understood as he's writing this narrative for his people to know who Yahweh is as they enter the promised land, and their first battle is going to be against Og, king of Bashan, who is a Rephaim, who is descendant of the Nephilim, which is why he's so big. Uh, changes everything and you start realizing that there's more going on there than we as naturalists have let the text tell us mm-hmm. which then frames the conquest of Canaan and, and not as genocide which you know as it is written if you don't pay attention uh, particularly in the Muslim world you do Muslim evangelism we have to deal with the conquest of Canaan on the part of Joshua because it comes off on the surface as just being genocide but what you have to pay attention to is they are sent after the Rephaim, the Amim, the Anakim, who are not humans, but they are the hybrid descendants of these creatures who produce this group of people who are not just humans. And they're the ones they are supposed to wipe out. And so that changes the game. But then we go, so you're telling me there were hybrid people on this earth? I, I told you I have, I've come to 100% conclusion. I think there, there were. Um, and I think that was part of the conquest of Canaan is to destroy them, to liberate the, the people, humans, uh, from the darkness of all of that so that they could receive the good news of who the Lord is and be saved. Um, but as we see in Jude and Peter, there is no salvation for those beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then you come along in the New Testament, I'm way ahead of the curve here for people, but when you get what Jesus calls unclean spirits, the understanding of an unclean spirit is it's the spirit of a Nephilim released from their body uh, seeking seeking another body. Jesus says a lot about those unclean spirits. He said when, they're, when they leave a person, they go and they pass through waterless places seeking a place to land. 
and the person sweeps and cleans up their life and they go and take seven others like them and the last day that person's worse than the first. So so these unclean spirits, um, which are connected back in Hebrew to these beings, are likely these spirits of Nephilim who were killed in the flood who are seeking another body to inhabit. And that's part of our spirit, just part of our spiritual warfare. Yeah. And so, dude, I know that just went down a, a hole for some people. It's like, oh my gosh. But it's in the text and you got to deal with it. Well, it's, and I and I agree with you. I, I think we we stand similar on our beliefs of what the sons of God were. But I think there's another part of this, and we've been talking, we've been hinting around it that we yeah. would need to address in yeah. verse four um, in reference to um, the Nephilim. And so let me just go back and read, read verse four of Genesis six. Um, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Uh, and there's some Hebrew important stuff in here too about how because a lot of Hebrew sentences start with and, yeah, right? It, yeah. it kind of continued that. Well, th- these two sentences in this verse does not do that. There's a no. clear separation and there's a lot of beliefs we won't get into today about what that might mean here. But let me kind of get into um, the Nephilim again because, um, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, but again, just like the sons of God, there's multiple interpretations, but there's really just two here, right? Yeah. There's two two interpretations we can take yeah. of who Nephilim are because uh, the Bible doesn't come out and just tell us for sure what exactly what they are. But one is the Nephilim are the offspring, right, of the fallen angels and the women of men. Yeah. Right. Of, right. So the spiritual beings having relations with human females mm-hmm. and that the Nephilim are their offspring that are either giants or superhuman type people, right? They're the combination. They're not hundred percent human. They're not hundred percent um, spiritual. And so the interpretation of the Nephilim being there before and after angels married humans and possibly the more likely one for a lot of people is that they simply just existed before this unnatural unions happened. And then they also existed after. So you can look at that, context in that scripture but two different ways yeah that they either they are the offspring of these of this these unnatural unions or the moses is just telling us that they existed before and they existed after right i don't think there's really any other place to go no, that's right. um the way that the phrase so this the phrase in that script in that verse that says they existed before and existed after seems to lean towards the interpretation that they just did that like that they were not the offspring for a lot of people. And so I think there's a lot of up in the air. I'm not even sure exactly yeah. what I believe on that, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. But let me, before we get to that, let me give a little bit more information on Nephilim because they're also mentioned in numbers 13 and you hinted at this a while ago, numbers 13, Moses is sending out spies into Canaan, right? And they was spent 40 days kind of spying on the land and they came back. And at first they were like talking about all the fruit and the milk and the honey, mm-hmm. you know, and it was all this good reports, but also they were telling Moses and Aaron, hey, we can't go against the people there because they are huge, basically. Uh, it doesn't say huge. They're huge. Yeah, they're <laughs> I added that. Huge. But basically coming back going, look, we, we can't take yeah. these. We're like grasshoppers to these Yeah, people. and that's yeah. what he goes on to say, right? Verses 31 yeah. to 33 say, Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So it's not just that they saw all these gigantic beings or people, but 
the clear language here where he says it's a land that devours its inhabitants, right? So that means people, the other people that weren't these big were under clearly under the rule of yeah. these beings, right? Yeah. Um, and we know when we get to the flood account, here's where, and we were talking about this beforehand a little bit, here's where there's some kind of confusion of the Nephilim. Did they die in the flood? Because it seems like the Bible clearly says anyone who wasn't in the ark died, but they're mm-hmm. clearly existed before the right. flood, and they're somehow either reappeared or survived, and a new line of Nephilim was created, or a new line of Nephilim was created after the flood. Um, Anak, who's mentioned in that numbers category, he's a descendant of Arba. As we find out Joshua 15, because we don't know a lot about Anak, right? There's not like a whole long lot of information on the Bible, but we, we know he was very physically large yeah. man, and his offspring were referred to as giants. Yeah. And he basically created an entire race of people. Uh, so just like Jacob, his name was, became Israel, and yeah. we had the race of Israelites. There were the Anakim, yeah. not Anakin, Skywalker, no, not so not Anakin. Star Wars That's reference. Right. Yeah. The Anakim were descendants of the Nephilim and were obsessed with war. Yeah. Uh, and there are many who believe that Goliath is either a Nephilim or part of the lineage of Anakim, as were other giants in Philistine at the time. And the reasons why is because Josh, so Joshua and his armies, they end up driving out all of the Anakim from Canaan, right? We, and yeah. you talked, you hit on that a little bit. They, they drive them out from Israel, yeah. and the ones that survived ended up in areas um, of Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. I hope I didn't wreck those names. And we yeah. hear that in Joshua 11, right? They ended up, yeah. And jo- Goliath was from Gad. Right. He was not a, a, a native Philistine. Right. And so there's a good chance he was Anakim, a descendant of Nephilim. Correct. And that's when we get, obviously, the most important, the most commonly known giant. But right. there's many other giants, including Goliath's brothers. One of his brothers that was killed, right? Right. Yeah, so that's right. I, I, I wanted to lay a little bit of that foundation for people oh, where we hear that. But I want to hear your thoughts on the Nephilim, because I know you've you spent a lot more time studying that and, and doing that. So. Yeah, what's interesting, Genesis 6-4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, comma, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them, these were the mighty men, men who are bold, the men of renown. So linguistically, it appears, and I think grammatically, the mighty men and men of renown are defining the Nephilim. Right. And if that's the case, then they are the product of the sons of God coming into the daughters of men. So verse 4 really describes for us the byproduct of what we see in verse 1 to 3. Correct. So I, I think that I think that is I think that leans it toward the direction of the Nephilim doesn't just exist. They were a, a race of people God created who happened to be giants. But it it is a descriptor of how the Nephilim came to be and who they are. And I think that's the most common understanding and I, I agree with that too. Yeah. But I could I could also understand why someone would hundred percent reject that a little bit from yeah. the text and so I think um, you, I think I think it's a legitimate option. I, I think I think you could go the other way and be perfectly fine. Right. Uh, but it's going to it's going to cause you to interpret other passages differently which is okay questions. too. It raises more <laughs> questions, but that's okay too. Yeah. And I want people to understand you don't have to believe that giants are hybrids of these divine beings and humans. You don't have to believe that. I think the text bears that out, but I think you can go the other direction, be perfectly orthodox in the faith, believe in Jesus, go to heaven. We're on we're on team Jesus. We don't have to be divided over this. But I do think the other option that I hold is a lot more satisfying. Yeah, well, and there could also be giants who are descendants of Nephilim and giants who are human who are just really big. We they can't I don't think be. we can argue that they they weren't. Very That's, possibly because we have large people today. Right. We have seven mm-hmm. footers, Yao Ming. We've got yeah. Shaq. We've and we got know there people. have been people who are over eight feet yeah. in, in existence in our history yeah. in, in recent 
century. So well, it, it's one of the great. It's a great book. Douglas Van Dorn. He's a PhD from Southeastern Seminary, South, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. His book on giants is worth picking up and reading. Get it on Amazon. Douglas Van Dorn, uh, giants, gold, solid gold. He he traces this theme and does a great. He's a PhD, so he does a good job with the language. Fascinating read. I would encourage people to go get it. Douglas Van Dorn. I would encourage people to get Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm. Totally worth. He has another book called. Uh, um, oh shoot! What's it's kind of a scaled down unseen realm. Unseen realm is a challenge to read. So if, if people want to go read, get get the Heiser light, because <laughs> unseen realm is a is a thick read. There's a lot of Hebrew in it, and he explains. He does a good job explaining it. But if you get lost in the weeds, it's going to be hard to read. Uh, but his Heiser light there there are two reads, and I'm sorry, it's escaping me. The but you can find it. You will see it's the unseen realm, and it's scaled down a lot easier to deal with. Go get it and, and just just walk through it, but but I think but I think when you get to Canaan, I think they're definitely talking about these descendants, and I think the reason this is, I think Genesis fourteen kind of bears that out a little bit because you get this little this combat scenario uh, in which um, Abram has to end up going rescuing Lot because Lot has been taken captive as a result of this conflict. But what you get is it's it's a conflict between some kings in the east coming against some of these giant kings there that end up being. Their descendants are Og, who's going to be the first casualty um, of kings of Canaan That's at the cool end of name, Joshua. Og. Right, it is kind of cool, right? Og, king of Bashan, and so even the even Bashan digging into what Bashan is in Hebrew is super important. Um, Og, the length, the length and width of Og's bed is made of iron is huge because it matches the description of the temple of Marduk. And the place where Marduk came down to do his stuff, same dimensions as Og's iron bed. That's pretty fascinating. That's Genesis, what, Genesis 14 is tough because there's a lot of weird names in there. That's, a lot of weird names, it, right? But if you can get past that, there's yeah. some good context there. Well, you get these, the Emim, you get, you get these, it's giant kings versus kings from the east. And there's this combat going on. And, and really, in God's providential means, he sets up later Joshua's conquest through this conflict, which shows you, A, the Lord's providential sovereign hand in, in, in many, many years before preparing the way for what Joshua would, would be called to do. I, yeah. That's encouraging to me. To when We have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We fear no evil for, because he's with us. So Joshua didn't have to fear the evil of Og because many, many years before, the Lord set that up for him. Yeah, that, And that gives my heart courage today, right? So, and so... When we face when we face hardship and difficult things, we can know the Lord goes for us. But so Genesis fourteen lays out for us that these people there in Canaan, descendants of Nephilim, Anakim, Rephaim, are hybrid descendants somewhere down the line. Maybe that how the genetic DNA structure of that began to weaken to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know, but it's kind of understood that that's the case. That they began to be defeatable, and so for many years they they ruled Canaan. Until at some point they began to weaken because of maybe how they were breeding, and and were defe- <coughs> were defeatable, and so that conquest begins to take place, and and Joshua and his guys. So so I think what they saw there, they saw these descendants, recognized them as large, and 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 whether whether they fully believed them to be hybrids, I think they probably did because they understood the background to that. But the fact that they were hybrids sits in, I think, their worldview. What they were afraid of was the fact that they're just so freaking large. And 
And I don't, and I just, I don't know how, how am I going to stab him in the heart when he's that tall? <laughs> you know, they're thinking right. like, how do we do this? And it, it caused fear. And Joshua and Caleb's only two said, let's get after it, man. The Lord's with us. And they're like, no, we're good. <laughs> and so, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I, my, my hunch is um, what they saw, they did see these descendants and, and they were afraid of them because of their size. Um, but I think what's even more devastating is not their size, was the spiritual conflict that came with it because they weren't just fighting men; they were fighting, they were fighting Marduk. Right. They they were fighting they were fighting these these little G Elohim that have rebelled against the Lord, His creatures. He created them, and He created them for a specific purpose, and they've rebelled somewhere in that because likely they didn't want to share the co regency with humans. They wanted to be the man, and the Lord made us. They're not image bearers. We are. Right. We are, not them. So we sit over them. Hebrews makes this little statement, like, for a little while made lower than the angels. You read that, and you're like, what? So for a little while, Jesus, the Son's made a little lower because he took, takes on flesh, meaning we're a little lower until that place of redemption where we sit above them. And, and Paul will tell the Corinthians, don't you know we're going to judge angels? So there's coming a day when we will sit in judgment over those in gloomy darkness and we'll pronounce judgment on them under the authority of the Lord. That's wild. Yeah. But that's what we're going to do because we, we are co-regents and image bearers. They're not. Mm-hmm. And so that's that spiritual conflict. And, and I think one of the last things I want people to recognize, one of the reasons the Great Commission is so hard, it's not because people just don't believe. They sit under this spiritual authority from Genesis 11 lived out in Psalm 82, in which when we go to the hard places we go, and we're not just fighting the unbelief of the humans there. We're fighting a spiritual battle in the heavenlies, which is, I'm convinced, one of the reasons our, our trips are always so hard. They're physically demanding. They're spiritually demanding. We fight wars at home. We fight wars on the road. It's because these dark forces do not want us to invade their territory. And, and thus spiritual warfare. So we wrestle not, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we take on the armor of God. And, and so the Great Commission's hard, evangelism is hard, because we're walking into territory that's held by entities that we can't see. Well, and Satan's not going to waste his energy on people not going after the Great Commission. Right? Like if you're yeah. just in sin, okay, keep doing that. Yeah. I I'm not going to spend time on you. I want the ones yeah. that are going... To destroy me, yeah. In if, my plan. if we're in sin, man, we're He's got us right where we want us, man. It's like we're in, we're a non-factor in the war. Yeah, but man, if you try to walk in holiness, expect to get kicked in the teeth. Yeah, well, and I think going back with the Israelites, in not that their fear was also based on the trauma of their history too, right? right. It's not that they just were afraid of dying; they were afraid of being under, you know they were under the rule of Pharaoh forever, right? And now. This enemy appears like if we're under their rule, it's going to be much worse for us. Yeah. And so we've already risked a lot to get to this point. That's what right. What if we just count our blessings and call it a day and we'll just <laughs> we'll eat smaller grapes? Yeah, we're just, good. We can, we can live on the edge of Canaan. We don't have to really yeah, go over in there. We'll just right? send people in there, get some food, and come back. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think that's understandable. But, right, um, right. Before I get to uh, – are you having uh, my takeaways? No, no. Last it, thoughts? Let's, go to, let's go to some Hayes takeaways. Give your last thoughts and Hayes takeaways. What's All right. Name? And before I do that, we'll drop – I'll drop in the um, description. We'll put a link for – Unseen Realm, uh, as well as go. We've talked about Haunted Cosmos podcast a lot. That they've really helped me. My understanding, they've got two episodes on giants. Yes, and they've got some other episodes on angels and spiritual beings and nephilim and stuff. So, 
we don't get we don't we're, we're not a partner of theirs, but we do uh, really like listening to it. So I encourage you to go listen to that yeah. too. Uh, that other book there. is Supernatural by Heiser. There's the Unseen Realm, then Supernatural is the Heiser. It's the Unseen Realm Light. Gotcha. So we'll drop those yeah. links to that because um, we think that will help you understand uh, more. The Unseen Realm is next on my book list. So I need to get that myself and uh, dive into it. But also check out Honda Cosmos. Those episodes are really helpful as well. Three simple haze takeaways for today. Uh, number one, if it's in the Bible, it matters, and we shouldn't just ignore things even if they are hard text or if there isn't much on them. Uh, this enhances our ability to study the Word and know it better. Um, and we're going to talk about some more hard text, I think, coming up in future episodes. We've talked about harder passages and yeah. kind of dissecting some of those, so hopefully if that's something you enjoy, you'll come back and check us out. Uh, number two, today's discussion further enhances the fact that the Bible is a meta narrative and, and kind of bringing us full circle. You hit on that at the beginning, uh, that everything is part of one story and intended to point us towards the Lord. Uh, and, and we need to be able to use, use scripture to help understand scripture. Yeah. <laughs> that seems simple, but it's necessary. Absolutely. And, and number three, look, we don't claim to have all the answers, especially on this. Cause we only have so much information to go off of. So be sure to always do your own research. Use contextual evidence in the scripture. Do word and language studies to get a better understanding of harder to understand passages. So we're not saying don't rely on the Bible. What we're saying is to help understand that there are other ways to look into the language and the, the, the intent on the writing. Yeah. Look beyond in the context of just that one passage and see what other places. We, we hit several yeah. uh, in Deuteronomy and in Job and in Numbers and Jude and Peter uh, in Psalms and Deuteronomy, I think I said that twice, so. yeah. but we read it twice. It's good. That's so there's right. there's a lot of that cross uh, referencing going on, and it's important to do your own research. Um, we we try to do ours the best we can, but again, we are we are not the uh, end all be all no, authority. We're, we're learning, and uh, as Lavar Burton used to say in the Reading Rainbow, "Don't take Shut my up. word for it." <laughs> so go read. Uh, go go unpack the text and and enjoy the text and let your Bible speak. The Lord will never lead us astray. And so if we unpack it, do it faithfully. We have the help of the Holy Spirit. Do it together so we can check each other and uh, and and vow to walk together in in unity and holiness going forward to to take the nations for the glory of Jesus. I think we we will do very very well. So again, don't take our word for it. Go read and study. We hope you will enjoy that. And I do believe you'll find some of the answers a lot more satisfying than simply explaining them away. So go check it out. Don't forget to share the podcast. Give us a five-star rating. Um, all that fun stuff. If you like to watch it, if you like to listen to it, whatever, share it with your family and friends. And uh, send us an email, theologyandthirty at gmail.com if you'd like to, to ask some specific questions. Particularly if you have some more questions following up from this one, send them to us. We'll get after them. Y'all have a great day. See you next time. Out. Just want you